0: Good morning. It is good to be back with you. If you were not here uh, last week, I had the privilege of being here last week and again uh, this week. It's always a privilege and a joy to uh, be with you and to uh, look into God's Word together and learn His truths. Thank you, Jim, for your prayer and for uh, the the truth of learning the scriptures and learning how they matter, how they apply. What I've been trying to do uh, last week and then uh, this week again is really to connect uh, passages of scripture. Often they're familiar, and uh, all the passages that we cover, certainly we could do in much more depth, and there's much more in each one of them. But really, we're trying to look at a picture. If you were with us last week, I began with the question, what's God like? What is he like? And I have a feeling if we would pass the microphone around and, and people would share, we would hear some different things about how we understand God to be, uh, especially in light of uh, different experiences, different growing up. If we could pass the mic further around our community here in Frisco and surrounding area, I'm sure a lot of people would have various visions and versions of what God is like. Some might even deny that there is a God and, and, and those types of Types of answers. And so uh, it's important if God reveals Himself to us that we, if you will, get the revelation correct that we understand him the way he is revealing himself to us. And so uh, just briefly, I want to touch on what I did uh, last time. If you weren't here, obviously there uh, uh, there's an audio available, right? And, and you can certainly listen to that if that uh, would be helpful. But when we ask the question, what is God like? We begin with uh, one of the early uh, of the Ten Commandments where God says, I don't want you to have any image or idol of me. That is, when you imagine what God is like, uh, don't imagine Imagine and then have some kind of an image or idol that 's what the the commandment is that is just because God is strong if we if we picture maybe a, a big strong ox or, or, or maybe a bull or something it's true those are strong animals, but God is so much stronger than uh, an ox or a bull or 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 so much more oversight than maybe what an eagle could have or whatever that we're not to picture God like a like an ox or, or, or like an eagle or even some kind of a mixture of of animals. Animal properties, no, no images, and if you remember, uh, of course, Israel. Well, Moses is up on the mountain receiving uh, God's law. Uh, they eventually. <clears throat> Excuse me they eventually come and they make an idol they make this image of a calf and they begin to worship it out of the gold that they had been given from Egypt and there's punishment for that and it's very serious 3000 if you remember die immediately uh, not only that there's a plague that strikes them and we don't get any details about the plague other than uh, there is that as well and and God deals with it because he says there are to be no images or no no idols uh, of me it, it's only a few chapters later in the book of Exodus that we We see that Moses is literally communing with God, is conversing with God in the same way two friends would talk like two friends speaking today after marathon. And, and he's communing with God, and then he says, I, I love to see your face. God is is really represented, in this case, in a, in a pillar of fire, and, and at night a pillar of cloud, or a pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud during the day. And, and Moses says, I'd like to see your face, and God says, well, no one can see my face and live, but if you remember, uh, I'll put you in the cleft of this rock, and I'll pass by, and then I'll, I'll, I'll remove my hand, I'll use my hand to cover your view, and then I'll, I'll pass by, and you'll be able to see sort of the back of me and whatever that might have been like. And it's just all kind of interesting until we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says that Jesus was the rock. That, that that somehow Jesus is what's being revealed when Paul wants to get a glimpse of what God is like. And we ultimately get all the way to John chapter 14, where we spent a little bit of time. And in John chapter 14, you'll remember maybe that uh, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, is listening to Jesus. And Jesus is talking about the Father, and the Father and I are one, and so on. And Philip says, well, show us the Father. I mean, what, what, when do we get to see the Father? And Jesus responds, well, if you've seen me you've seen the Father. In other words, I am the image that you get when you see the Father. And that's precisely what Paul was saying when, when we see that Moses was wanting to see God and, and really it's a presence of Christ somehow in the rock and whatever was all going on there that, that that God uses so that we actually can see him. And we got all the way to the point where we recognize multiple times in the New Testament that Jesus is the image of the Father. That is, we are not to make images of God, from Exodus chapter 20, from the Ten Commandments, uh, but that Jesus is the image of God. Just briefly here, 2 uh, Corinthians 4.4, the, <clears throat> the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ Who is the image of God? That is, when you need to picture God, when you think in your mind, what is God like, the picture you need to have is of Christ. That's what Christ is doing. He is, if you will, revealing God. Colossians 1:15, Paul writing again: the Son is the image of the invisible God. Can't see God, but you can see the Son. The Sun is the image that we incorporate into our understanding of what God is like. Um, Hebrews uh, 1 1 to 3. In the past, uh, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by the Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being sustaining all things through his powerful word. And and so, again, the sun is presented as the image that we need to see. And and so we saw this, we looked at a variety of things briefly. Remember, Isaiah had this vision in Isaiah chapter 6, and he gets this vision of the throne room, and and he he, he sees the Lord on the throne high and exalted, or high and lifted up, and that's kind of unique language in the prophets. Later Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, and if you remember Isaiah 52 and 53, Three, we often talk about that as the suffering servant, where it's prophesied that Jesus would come and suffer, and by his suffering, by his stripes, we are healed, that uh, famous uh, sort of 52 and 53, which begins that, behold, I see the son of man, uh, or behold, I see the servant high and exalted, high and lifted up. And that same language from Isaiah 6 is in the beginning of Isaiah 52. And then later we have Jesus in the New Testament meeting with Nicodemus, recorded in John chapter 3. And then Jesus uses that same language with Nicodemus that tells Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, you must be born again. And Nicodemus can't imagine how would that ever work. And then Jesus says, do you remember Moses in the desert when the people were being bitten by snakes and dying? And that they had to fashion this bronze snake, and and they put it up on a pole according to what God had commanded Moses, and the people would get bit, and they would begin to die, and if they looked at this bronze snake, they would be healed. And then Jesus says, and the Son of Man must be lifted up, just like the bronze snake in the desert. As a matter of fact, further investigation, Jesus is really being called the bronze snake in the desert. Again, we have this picture of Jesus being high and exalted and lifted up. And so all that to say is it becomes apparent in the New Testament that what Jesus, that what Isaiah saw in the Old Testament was a vision of Jesus. When he saw God, what he actually saw was Jesus. And so through the whole course of the various passages we looked at last time together, we see that Jesus is the revealer of the Father. He is what gives us the view of what God is like. God cannot be seen but revealed himself in his son, his son who can be seen. Some of you who were here last week would wonder, well, why didn't I just say it like that the first time? Why did it have to take so long? I don't know. It's a lot easier the second time. I don't know what else we did there, but that sort of covers last time. So I want us to kind of carry on and and, and keep going. And so if you have your Bibles, make your way to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. 13. Again, I want you to keep considering the question, what is God like? And if God is being revealed through his son Jesus, then what are we supposed to think of when we see God or when we think about God? You see, some people grow up in the church and what they think God is, the experiences they've had is God is a lawgiver, God gives rules. God's the type of God who, if you got 99 on a math test, God's saying, well, where's the 1%? Why did you miss one? Right, right that, that God is all about legalism. And so often in the church's history, legalism has been the primary presentation of what God is like. God gives rules, and you follow them, or you fall away, or you fall out. And for some people, that's what they picture, if, if you study the, the atheism that is prevalent today and people who, who, are, who are philosophically saying there is no God, I don't believe in a God, or I'm an anti-theist, or all sorts of things that are being said, when they actually describe what they don't believe, that is, this is the God we are rejecting, the God they are rejecting is primarily a God that I would reject too. That, that, that it's the idea that God is watching over us, just waiting for us to mess up, and he can't wait to blame us, to, to, to condemn us, because you messed up here and you lost your temper there, and you did this, we did that, and and, and he's looking over, we can't possibly ever please him. And and so th- that is what they think God is like. <clears throat> and so it matters how we answer the question because God has revealed to us what he is like. As a matter of fact, I began last time by saying I think every page in Scripture either explicitly is telling us what God is like, literally it's giving us details of the nature of God, or implicitly telling us what God is like by showing how God acts in certain situations, how God acts with certain nations or certain peoples or certain families. Excuse me. And so, what we're trying to do is really just get this this picture. This we're trying to connect passages in Scripture so that we get a a good understanding of when we picture God, we're picturing the right thing right, that, that, that we're seeing God for who he is. And so really want to just keep working here. We're working right towards the end of Jesus' life right now. And, and we're seeing that, well, we'll see how John reveals this. So John chapter 13, it was just before the Passover feast, uh, uh, excuse me, just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Okay. So these are now the beginning of those last days, those last events, the events that are ultimately going to lead to his trials, his crucifixion, his burial, three days later resurrection, and ultimately 40 days after that ascension. So Jesus knows, this is very important to understand this passage, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew it. He knew this was the end. This is the beginning of the the events that will end my life. This is the beginning of the end, if I can call it that way. And so, I ask the question, so what's he like? What's he like when he knows he's about to go to the cross? Let's keep reading. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So even that, the tail end of verse 1 is already beginning to tell us he's going to love them to the end. He's a loving God that when we picture what is God like, maybe near the front, we should be picturing something related to love, that he's loving. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power and had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so, in the midst of this knowing the end has come, Jesus needs to sort of send some final messages. And rather than speak a great sermon, uh, he, he chooses to do it with a basin and a towel, right? And it's not really the way we picture power, right? We don't really picture power like if we say, you know, God is the God of the universe, right? The statement kind of sounds strong and mighty, right? You, you picture maybe a kingdom and a castle and a big throne and a strong God. God is, God is Lord of creation, right? It's, it's a big sound. And so what does that look like? And, and then, well, it looks like a, a guy with a, a, around his waist, a, a, a towel and a basin, washing feet. That's what it looks like. And, and so God is revealing himself often much different then we picture him, even we as believers. As a matter of fact, this sort of work of asking the question, what is God like and seeing how he reveals himself is a great exercise to do on an ongoing basis. You're, you're studying Proverbs and, and you ask, well, what is God like? How is he being portrayed through the wisdom of the Proverbs? Or maybe you're in the Old Testament or in the Minor Prophets. Maybe you're reading the writings of Paul or of John, or maybe you're in the book of Revelation. You ask the question, What is God like? What what is being revealed? And it's really important for two reasons, which Jim captured in his prayer. Reason number one is it affects how we live. Because if all God wants to do is point out your faults, you kind of live cowering down, right? You live in fear, I messed up again. God's gonna be so upset with me. We kind of react, even as believers, we kind of react like Adam reacts when he sins. When he sins, when he and Eve sinned for that first time, then God comes and what do they do? They run, they hide. They fear God. Why? Because their image of God, their portrait of God, their picture of God was that God needed to be feared. They were in trouble. Now they did sin. And we don't want to belittle or deny the sin, but I don't think they had quite the right image of God. Now, they were disciplined. They were punished. They were ultimately removed from the garden and and so on, and that introduced death and so on. But, But God had a plan beyond just the immediate, ultimately, that that death could be swallowed up in in new life. We get this interchange, and I'm going to just sort of skip. Uh, you remember Peter says, Well, you don't wash my feet, uh, you wash everything. I mean, if you're going to wash, you need everything. Jesus' is like, No, I do. you don't need to wash everything, just the feet. And, and, and so we got that, and then. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. They are clean, uh, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. He knew what Judas was going to do. So he knows he's going to be, well, what I really want to ask is how does God feel when you sin or when I sin? How does he feel? Or how do we think he is when he sees us sin? right? Because that's what's going on. He knows what Judas is going to do. And I assume you know the text. You know what Judas is going to do, right? Judas, for a sum of money, 30 pieces of silver, he is going to identify Jesus to the appropriate people who at that point are going to arrest him, right? That's what he's going to do. And the, the, the code word to make this all happen, so we know who it is, it's the one that Judas will kiss. So he will deny his savior with a kiss, right? That's what's about to happen, and Jesus knows it, right? 4, verse 11, he knew who was going to betray him, and that what he said, uh, when he said not everyone was clean. And so the question is, how does he act when he knows he's going to be betrayed? but there's more. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you as an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He just made us, with his speaking there, his equal, right? I mean, he's the Lord and the teacher, but he took the role of the servant and then tells us, by the way, no no master is greater than the servant. That that, that is, part of the teaching, once we get through Jesus' crucifixion and conquering uh, death and resurrection, ultimately ascension, we're going to get to the epistles that are going to help us to understand what salvation all means. And what we're going to find out is that part of this is so that we could be adopted as God's children, which makes us equal with his son, correct? If you're a child of God, if I'm a child of God, and if Jesus is a child of God, then we are, doesn't that just sound wrong? We're equal with Jesus? Doesn't that sound, I mean, it just, we're not equal. I mean, he's perfect and we're adopted and forgiven, right? We're adopted into God's family and we're forgiven. I, I mean, if we believe in the sufficiency of the cross, then we really are forgiven, Right, which is sometimes hard because then we keep sinning and then we keep wanting to figure out how do we have to pay for this sin, right? Don't you ever feel that you, you sin and then you? I, 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 mean, this one can't be covered under the blood. This one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have, to, I'm gonna have to deal with this one. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run. I'm gonna today's that praise thing in the church thing, I'm going to not go, right? I'm going to flee God, right? We, we kind of tend to find ourselves at times thinking like Adam because we think of God incorrectly. And Jesus says, here's what I want you to picture. When you want to see me come in power, picture a, a, like, a, like a towel and a basin, okay? That, that's my big power move. D- don't picture the, the, the might and, and he is mighty, right? He is powerful. We see in Revelation he's going to come back and he'll be riding a horse of the banner, righteous and true, and king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, don't underplay. He's not small and, and lowly, but he handles us and he handles the sin that he knows is coming, that we, he knows we do in a very interesting way. He handles it with Love. That's what he's doing. What I'd, what I'd like to do is, here's some of John 13. Last time together, we did uh, a lot of John 14. I'd love to just kind of keep going, 15, 16, 17. It all kind of fits together <clears throat> in light of time. Let's just go to John 17. Uh, a, a couple of uh, of things about this prayer. This is all sort of the same setting. Uh, John 14, last time. Remember, So it's in this sitting that, that, that Philip asked the question, uh, show us like, when have we seen the Father? And Jesus answers that question, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That that, that was John 14. Uh, we talked about that last time a little. By John 17, Jesus is now praying in front of everyone, okay? So this this whole John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it's all one setting, all here uh, at the the time of celebrating the Passover festival, just before he's going to ultimately go to the garden to pray, and once he goes to the garden to pray, he's going to uh, ultimately the 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 soldiers will come and and uh, so on. He will be arrested. Judas will come and and betray him. And, and not only that, of course, we have the interchange with Peter that I skipped, and Peter's going to betray him as well in in a different sense, right? So so there's a there's the Peter's denial. And, and 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 Judas's betrayal right so that's probably the right way Peter denies knowing Jesus Judas betrays Jesus Jesus wants to pray for us so <clears throat> I just want to pick a couple of passages here uh, 17 verse 1 after Jesus said this he looked towards heaven and he prayed father the hour has come glorify your son that your son might glorify you and he begins to pray pray in that sense with this relationship of father and son. He's praying to his father. We jump down to verse six, and in verse six, Jesus prays, I have revealed you, that's I've revealed the father, I've revealed you, father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. And he goes on. So he moves from praying to the Father, interacting with the Father, to praying to the Father about his disciples, right? About those that the Lord had given to him that he has revealed the Father to. Remember, what is Jesus' job? Jesus' job is to reveal to us the Father. That's what he does. He gives us the image. He's the image of the uh, of the invisible God. He is the firstborn or or the preeminent one over creation. So then he prays for his disciples, and there's details there. It's well worth our time. But in moving along, we go to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, not just the disciples. So Jesus begins by praying, talking to the Father, prays for the disciples, really verse 6 through verse 19. Now we pick it up in verse 20. My prayer is not also for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Remember, the disciples are going to be eyewitnesses, although they will run, uh, of ultimately his crucifixion. They will be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. They will literally see the resurrected Christ. They will be able to literally put their hands on the scars that that are on the wrist and so on, the, 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 the mark on the side, the scar on the side, that, uh, th- that would be there. So they're going to be eyewitnesses. They're the ones who are going re- to record this for us, right? John's going to record it. Now here we're reading it, right? Matthew's going to record it. Um, <clears throat> Peter will ultimately do some of the recording, et cetera, et cetera. So now those who believe because the apostles will end up writing this down, that's us, right? Right? He is praying for us, for the generations of believers that come after the apostles. Um, Believe in me through their message, verse 21, that all of them, all of them might be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, uh, that they might be one as we are one. S- so the prayer is for all of us believers that we might recognize the lesson that He taught in John 13. Remember the lesson. The lesson is that the Lord, you call me Lord, you call me teacher, that's good. But remember the the, 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 the Lord and the Master isn't greater than the servant they're all equal. So now he's praying, he's praying that same thing. May the believers in me, in the the message that the apostles will record that we have in scripture, may the believers recognize that they're one. We're, We're all at the same level. There's not a hierarchy amongst, if you'll allow me, filthy sinners, Right? I mean, that's what we are, right? We're, we're, we're sinners in desperate need of a savior, so much so we can't save ourselves, right? We can't save each other. I really can't help you, right? My job isn't to say, hey, really, I can, I could save you. I can't. I can do this, right? I can be a sign pointing to what will help, which is the truth of Jesus, right? So we're desperately in need of Jesus, and at that level, we're all one. There's no reason to have a hierarchy of any sort. <clears throat> 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they might be one as we are one, and I and them, and you and me. And th- there's a lot of unity here. This is important, but I, I want to kind of get to the big picture here. Then the world will know that you've sent me. And you've loved them even as you have loved me. And so we've got this picture now uh, of the love that the father has for the son is going to be the same love that the father has for the believers who are adopted, who are the same sons and daughters. That's what he's saying and now he's going to show that that this has always been true verse 24 we read this last time together father i want those who you have given me to be with me where i am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world that is what do we picture on father's day when we ask the question What's God like? And he says, well, before the world was even created, before Genesis 1, if we could just pull back the curtain and take a peek before God spoke into existence all things, and as it turns out, John chapter 1 tells us he spoke through his word, which is his son. As as it turns out, there's always this connection between father and son, and ultimately through spirit as well, uh, that all things were created. And if you want to know, well, what was going on before all things were created, picture a father loving a son. That's what we got adopted into. Why were you created? Because the father's love for the son is so great, he wanted to share it with more than just the son. And so every one of us is here for that specific purpose. God wasn't lacking anything. It's not like, well, I needed people to worship me and so I got a whole bunch together. I'm just going to build this big posse that's all going to, you know, just revere me. He he lacked no worship. As a matter of fact, what we begin to see is the whole purpose of the way of God's nature is. I have this illustration. I wrote it in my notes, and I didn't know where to put it. And so I'm thinking, this is a good place. Wish I would have thought of that when I was working on the notes. I don't really know where it is in the notes. I actually, I don't even think I put it in the notes. Imagine we all went outside to the parking lot right now. okay? We all go outside to the parking lot, and out there, and this is I'm making this up, I'm not... Okay, out there is this big truck. It's got these big, big wheels, much bigger than you normally see on the road, big knobby tires and everything. And it's all jacked up, it's real big, tall, it's all jacked up. And you can actually look and you see the suspension and it's not, it's not one shock and strut, but it's multiple. And you can see the truck was designed to go off roads, right? big truck, big wheels, big suspension, everything's big and shiny and clean. And you can just see this belongs in the dirt or the mud or, or going through bogs or whatever they do with those big trucks. It's, it's one of those big trucks. That's what it was designed for, right? We could literally not drive it, just look at it and go, huh, that was designed for, for the dirt. I mean, you don't need tires that big for the streets in Frisco. You don't need, you, you know, the, the truck wouldn't even fit in someone's you know, garage and so on. It was designed to go off-road. We could, we could tell, right? doesn't mean we're an expert. We could just tell. Let's say also in the parking lot is one of those, you know, those super sports cars, real small and real low and really not too much room inside. And you look at it and it's kind of 80% of the car's engine, right? And let's say the owner comes out and they start it for us. And so it's rumbling out there. I don't know if you've ever heard one of those really fancy sports cars rumble, you know, those huge engines. And so, you know, we're listening and we're, yeah, wow. And you can tell the thing was built for speed, right? I mean, those cars, just, you look at them, there's no room. They're not, It's not meant to go through drive through There's no cup holders or anything like that. The, 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 they're only meant to go fast. 80% of the thing is engine, right? And the rest is gas tank. And you put those two things together, you get like three and a half miles a gallon or something, right? They're made to go fast. We can tell that. God's design, if I can say that, the way God is made with the Father being God, Old Testament, the Son being God, New Testament, the Spirit being God, later in the New Testament, and there is only one God, that design is a design for relationship. That's what God is designed for. Trucks with big wheels and big suspension is designed to go off-road cars with really small and low and big engine are designed to go fast. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, is designed for relationship. That is, he was in relationship long before we ever existed, and furthermore, not merely relationship, but he was designed to love. That's the design. If I could give you a blueprint of God, this is a design— for constant love, which is not how we primarily think of God, is it? When I say picture God, we often don't think love first, but that's the design. The Father has eternally been loving the Son, And so, on Father's Day, we often think of our fathers, and if you had a good father's uh, relationship with your father, then you can picture a a father loving a son or loving a daughter. That's easy to do. If you didn't have a good father situation, it's easy to picture what you would have liked, right? Which is a a loving father loving his son or loving his daughter. We can picture a loving father, and that's what he's been like, and that's what Jesus prays here, verse 24, that's what he says since the beginning, that uh, because, you have loved me before the creation of the world. What was he always doing before he spoke everything into existence? He was a father loving a son. He was relational. Now, let's just imagine for a moment, let's consider another option. All use Islam, but you could use other other world religions and so on. And so Islam has one God. The God is Allah, right? That's how Allah is presented. And Allah, in their sacred writings, the ones that Muhammad was involved with, uh, called the Quran, Allah is presented as a loving God, okay? But Allah is not Father, Son, and Spirit. It's none of that. He's, it's just Allah. It's, if I could call this pure monotheism, just just the the, the, the God... Allah, that's all there is. And, and Allah is said to have existed before creation, okay? And Allah is said to be love, okay? Uh, lo- lo- loving who, right? Uh, Allah, and this is a real problem for Islamic scholars as they try and make sense of the scriptures that they work from. Allah had no one to love. How could you call him loving if he actually nothing existed there was no one Allah is not eternally a father loving a son that's not Allah that's not how he's presented in the Quran he is presented as one and only and so how do Muslims relate to their God well they work to get to him right isn't that what they do They they have a certain prayer schedule that they have to keep, and they try to get the attention of their God, try and win the favor of their God. And if they do certain things, depending on which branch of Islam you, you, you follow, then it's thought that well, maybe this will bring you paradise or or, or this will bring you eternal life or or this will bring you Allah's favor. And there's a variety of things that may or may not do that. And so the onus is on you to get... See, Allah is not designed for relationship. The way he's presented in the Quran is he's presented apart from people. People are not made in the image of Allah according to the Quran. We're made in the image of God. What's our God like? Our God is a Father, a Son, and a Spirit, who eternally have been, the Father has been loving the Son for all eternity. There, there is a loving relationship that's always been existence, and that's what we were created into. We were literally created to be part of the loving relationship between the Father and Son. We were designed to be uh, sons and daughters of God Almighty. We've wrecked that with our sin. Jesus has conquered the, the, the consequences of sin with his death and ultimately resurrection, and then we get adopted in, and it's all made new. And so it's this beautiful picture that the Bible is always picturing when you talk about God is it's loving as a matter of fact, this is John. John's big thinking. John's again. We've been in John 13, 14, 15, all the way to seventeen here. If we went to John's uh, first letter, his first epistle, First John, uh, he records it. And, and I, I hate to do this to John because he's got this beautiful build up in chapter four to what God is. It's like a giant crescendo in music. And I'm just going to grab the, the highest point here, if you'll allow me. Uh, first John, chapter four, verse seven and eight. John, the same John. Here is writing there, and he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And this is this big buildup that started several verses ago. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because. And now he gives us a glimpse on the blueprint. What was the design of God made to be? God is love. Allah is said to be loving. God is love. That is designed for love like a monster truck is designed for dirt, right? Terrible analogy. When you think of God, don't think of monster trucks or fast cars. I also debated, you know, talking about you see basketball players who are really tall designed for basketball or whatever... I don't know. But God is designed for love, his very nature. And that's why, why doesn't God show his face to Moses back in in Exodus? Because he reveals himself in his son, and it wasn't yet time, was it? In the time of Moses, that wasn't the time for Jesus to come. When was the right time? Well, Paul records that for us, Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time. In other words, whatever factors God had, they were fulfilled at the time when Jesus actually came, at the time when Jesus was born. And so, first, God wanted to reveal that he was God. But but furthermore, that he needed to ultimately send his son and reveal that his son is God. And then he needed to reveal that the spirit is God, and that's what dwells in us. And so, the triune God is literally designed for relationship. That's, that's what the design is. And that design, that, that father, son, the, the, the father, son, the The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and there is only one God. That that, that union, that trinity, uh, that, that God is the Godhead, is the model of what love is. That's what love is. And so, if we better understood what's God like we would much better understand, for example, some of the challenges that we have going on in our culture today in relation to things like marriage. When someone says, well, what about two men? Like, like w- Would that work? Well, it's very simple. That's not love. That's not what love is. Father, son, and spirit, that's love. That's the blueprint for love. That's what love is. But it's not father, son, son. It's not father, 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 or or some other perversion, it's each in the Godhead, each has a role to play. And so when we're made in God's image, a man is made in God's image, a woman is made in God's image, and a man isn't more of an image bearer than a woman. A woman isn't more of an image bearer than a man. But if you want to get a little glimpse of what God is like, God's image is best revealed in the relationship between one man and one woman, right? That's what we get with marriages. We get constantly that marriage is this picture to help us understand. And, and he keeps it simple for us. Can you imagine if God had created three genders because, you know, father, son, spirit. He had, he did, You know, there was male and female. Like, he didn't do it. He kept it simpler for us, but it is supposed to be a picture for us of what he is like, how the son comes to fulfill the will of the father. Right? That's what Jesus tells us. If you ask the question, why did Jesus die? The most correct answer, biblically speaking, is because the Father asked him to, which I know doesn't fully answer the question. Ultimately, it's to accomplish salvation and so on. But the Son is working in obedience to the Father. Furthermore, when the Son is baptized, the Spirit comes upon him, and it's the Spirit who leads and guides. Well, we're losing time here. We need to get to uh, one of these pages um uh yeah so one of the last things that we see jesus do is we see him wash his disciples feet that's where we started in in john chapter 13 what's he doing now see because see, part of the question has to be has he become so high i mean if he's sitting at the right hand of the father is he so high, so lofty, so holy? Has he become somewhat detached? I mean, it's great that he was loving when he was on earth, but have we lost some of that? And if you know, in some, in some traditions of Christianity, Jesus is presented so holy that if you really want a, more of a relationship, you need to have a relationship with his mom, right? With Mary. And, and that's introduced in Catholicism because they've pushed Jesus so high that, that you really can't relate to him, and so then your relation comes through Mary. Because Mary, I mean, she's a mother. We all can understand mothers and how wonderful they are, and they love their children and so on. So if you want to get to Jesus, you go through the mother, and that's taken some time to develop, but that's part of what's been projected. So is that true? Is Jesus so high and so lofty and so holy that we simply can't relate to him to today, Revelation chapter 5. We want to get an image of what Jesus is like today, or what is God like right now. So we go to Revelation chapter 5. So, in the book of Revelation, John, our same friend John, you can kind of see we're just really sort of following uh, John's writing here, and John uh, ultimately is given this, this vision, this heavenly vision. It's like he can look into an area that no one's been able to see before, and that's really the book of Revelation. The, the hard part of the book of Revelation is we want to think about it sequentially, like this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and yet... It's a little more like, imagine, imagine you went to the State Fair of Texas, and, and you were there in one of the busy days. You're there Saturday afternoon, beautiful day, and it's crowded. And so I call you on the phone, and I say, well, what's it like? you're like, well, what's it like? And then, w- well, o- over here we've got a young family and they're trying to quickly feed their baby and the baby seems to be rather irritated by how, how how hot it is and so on. And right beside them there's a long line for the big Ferris wheel and it looks like, well, it looks like it's over an hour long. And and, and then I see these kids and they're playing the games or they're trying to win, win the big stuffed animal. And, and over here someone's eating a deep fried something or other, right, because they always have deep fried something or other there. And and, and they don't, you know, and they and, and, so, and, and, and literally what you're doing is you walk and you just tell me all these things that are going on, they're all happening at once. That's sort of like time in the book of Revelation. What John is seeing is all going on, and so we, t- we try and talk about it sequentially, but it's not really a sequence, It's what's happening. And so here's what's happening in chapter 5 when John sees this. John writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now we should know. We can't see God, but so no images. You can't create an image, right? Don't picture a bull or an eagle or an ox or something like that. That would be wrong. But the image of God is his son, right? He's the image of God, firstborn over all creation. So when we're seeing someone on the throne, it has to be the son. And so uh, we see here, um, then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now we've got to sort of go so, because we get all Cut up with things. Seven, if we just think about the Bible, you think about seven, the first sort of go-around with seven is creation, right? There's six days of creation, all of which are good, culminating in the creation of man and woman, which was very good, and upon completion— not exhaustion. We've got to get this right here. God doesn't rest because he's tired. He rests because he's done, and so seven represents completion, right? The seventh day is the day when creation has been completed, and now God can rest, right? Right? So when we talk about sevens, the number of completion, that's what we're saying is that in light of what we see in creation, six days of work, when all the work is done, the seventh day represents the day of completion. So the scroll is sealed completely. You with me, right? Isn't that what it says? It says both sides of the scroll, writing on both sides of the scroll, sealed with seven seals. Well, seven represents completion, it's completely sealed. You cannot see what's in this scroll. It's completely sealed, right? That's what the seven means, right? All right. And then a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Now remember, it's completely sealed. Seven seals, seven means completion. It's completely sealed. And what does John do? He wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Now, we need a little bit of context. Ideally, read Revelation 1 through 4, because that would help. And and then also read from from 6 to the end, because that would help as well. But but, but what's going on is, it, it appears that the chaos of the world needs to be dealt with. Okay, so, so we're at a world of brokenness, and on the throne is the scroll, and it's sealed completely, and we're trying to think, does anyone have the ability to open the scroll because we're still in chaos? That's the context. We're, we're in chaos, and so John is weeping because now there's no hope. He's weeping because if someone can't open the scroll, how are we ever going to deal with What's going on? And, and, and so the, the, there's this, this weeping, and he weeps and he wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See? Okay, now we've got imagery. Let's, let's, let's go carefully here. The lion... Oh, I'm picturing a lion. Did you do that too? I mean, that's what I did. I pictured a lion. Okay, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll, which is completely sealed. That's my rendering. What it actually says is, and it's seven seals. Okay, the lion. So lion, you picture, you know, like a, prowling, strong, ready to leap and pounce. You wouldn't want to meet him, right? The lion, okay? The lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, Judah gets this special blessing. Judah is the fourth-born son of Jacob, remember? Jacob marries first uh, uh, Rachel, who turns out to be Leah, And then he marries Rachel, who turns out to be Rachel, right? So he's got Rachel, who's Leah, and then Rachel, who's Rachel, and and, and so on. And so through his first wife, Rachel, who goes by Leah, he has four sons, and the fourth is Judah. And and later, when, when Jacob is blessing his sons, in the blessing, we learn that through Judah, number four, any of you fourthborn? Any fourthborns here? look at that, none of us. Huh, interesting. Fourthborn uh, is going to be the one where the scepter resides. Well, the scepter is the ruling authority. That's the sign of kingship. So we're told in the blessing of Judah that that's going to be the kingly line, which is strange. Why not the oldest? Or why not Rachel's first? That would be, of course, Joseph. But it's not Joseph, and it's not through Joseph's children. It's not Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. that is, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. But you'll remember, that tribe loses its kingship in Saul's unfaithfulness, and then it's ultimately going to go to David, who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. OK, so we're talking here about a descendant from the root. Uh, a a descendant of the tribe of Judah from the root of David. The root is that starting point of kingship. Remember, it really started with Saul. That family loses the kingship. David inherits the kingship or gets anointed to be king uh, uh, by Samuel. And so that's the, the reference here. And I saw a lamb. And now we have to deal with this imagery. Powerful as a lion, but what do you see? A lamb little children walk towards lambs, right? That's not what we fear. It seems that if Jesus is a lamb that he would be pretty approachable. You remember we read in John chapter uh, 13 that Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. What's the first thing he says to his disciples after his resurrection when they've finished jumping out of their socks seeing their savior is now alive again and they're trying to understand what is the first word jesus says recorded in all four gospels always the same thing what's the first word he says to his betrayer or or to his denier peter what's the first word he says to all his disciples peace you see, that's not what we think about. When we think about God, especially if we're hurting or, or, or we're struggling with sin, when we think about God, there's last thing. I mean, he's mad at me, right? I asked for forgiveness for the sin. I claimed I'd never do it again. Four days later, boom, there it is again. There's no way that he could still love me, right? We tend to picture a God who isn't the God who has res- revealed Himself in His Word, and that's what we're trying to do? W- what does the Word say God is like? Well, picture a lamb. That's what we're to picture here. Picture a lamb. I saw a lamb, and it looked like it had been slain, standing at the center of the th- standing at the center standing at the center of the throne. How come he's not sitting on the throne? You remember John Bunyan? John Bunyan was this great Christian. He was actually a tinker. He... he made pots and pans, and, and, and he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, which has been the second most translated book and probably read book in all of history. The Bible far outweighs that. But Pilgrim's Progress has been this profound Christian truth of this man named Christian making the journey towards the celestial city. Well, he had an observation here, which is just fascinating, which is the question, why is the lamb standing? Like, why isn't he sitting on the throne? And he said it's interesting that he stands at certain times. You see him sitting on the throne, for example, in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah has that vision, you have the high and exalted Lord sitting on the throne. Okay, But here he's standing. And and John Bunyan had this observation that it's interesting, really the only place we see that is, you remember in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen? Stephen is this newly appointed sort of deacon for the church, one of seven deacons. He ends up getting Confronted by the Pharisees. In Acts chapter 7, he does a wonderful job of teaching you the entire Old Testament as he reviews Israel's history to show ultimately how Jesus was the Savior who was ultimately crucified. And and then we Jews, Stephen is saying, are are responsible. You Jews, you Pharisees, you're responsible for the crucifying of of Christ. Well, as you can imagine, the Pharisees don't approve of this much. And, And so they are about to stone him to death, or are stoning him to death, and Stephen has an image of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, standing. He's about to lose his life, and the son gets up to greet Stephen and bring him in. And here again, not sitting, but standing at the center of the throne, <clears throat> encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns, complete power, right? If the horn is this offensive weapon, seven of them, seven is a sign of completeness. This lamb represents complete power. He had seven eyes. Well, that would be complete or all seeing, right? If seven is completion, then the lamb has a complete view of everything. And there were seven spirits of God sent into all the earth, again the sign of completion. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so we see the lamb is in front of the throne standing and and we have no image for what's sitting on the throne other than that the scroll is being taken. And, and, And John Bunyan, I should maybe conclude that, concluded that the lamb stands when someone's martyred for their faith. That's what, that's what his insight was. Hard to know whether that's right or not, but it's really interesting judging from what we see in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen and how rarely you see standing at the throne rather than sitting. It's, it's a very interesting uh, to think of Jesus always being ready to receive those, uh, especially those who are giving their life for, uh, for the faith. The Lamb... <coughs> And when it had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one uh, a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, and the prayers which were the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and people uh, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth, and so this is the image that John has when the the, the sort of the curtain of heaven is pulled back, and we see this, this lion like figure who is a lamb. We see the power clothed in gentle humility. I mean, I guess if we saw this on earth, it would be kind of like seeing uh, the Jesus who turned the tables in the temple because people were trying to make a profit rather than pray. The same Jesus may be wearing, I don't know, like a a towel and maybe a basin washing people's feet. Right? Isn't that what we're seeing? We're seeing the God with all power reveals himself in meekness or adopts us into unity. We're one with Jesus, sons and daughters of the King. And so we see this picture of Jesus. And ultimately, what we see uh, is once the scroll is open, ultimately, this takes some time through the text to open the scroll. We'll conclude with this, picking up in chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, in verse 13. One of the elders asked me, uh, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I said, Sir, you know. And he said, They are those who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Here's what happens when the scroll gets un- unrolled Never again will they hunger never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When we ask the question, what is God like? The answer always is Jesus. And if you turn and ask the question again, well, what is Jesus like? The answer is, God was built for relationship, and Jesus is the manifestation of God's love. That's what God is like. God is love. And when we pray to him, he's lovingly looking down on us, knowing full well will sin at least I will I can't really speak for you but I will I, I mean I don't mean to but I will and I'll be ashamed and I'll want to run and it's the wrong reaction it's the wrong god don't run embrace the fact that when Jesus knew he was going to get betrayed by Peter the first thing he said was peace let me restore you and of course he does and we see that in John 21 God is love That's what we need to know this week, and that's what we need to show this week. God is love. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us an image, not an image of an animal or a collection of animals, but of your Son. And when we look at your son, we see his life and we see him born in such humility in a manger with probably a very scared Mary and Joseph having no idea what it would be like to raise the Son of God. And we see his interaction in the gospels of him loving people and healing and ministering often to down and outers, not in the limelight of glory, but in the backwater places, places that we would never have heard of unless. Jesus had once visited there. And so we're reminded, Father, that you are a loving God. And we're not looking to make excuses for our sin, but we are reminded that the price has been paid in full on the cross, and that you want us to see you as you have revealed yourself, a loving God, a Father who's always been loving his Son and has invited us into that same loving relationship as adopted sons and daughters with our debts of sin fully paid through Christ on the cross, and that we are then showing that to the world in which we live. And so, Father, that's what we pray, that that's what we could show what love is, the love that we could see between the Son and the Father, that we would show that in our unity with each other as Jesus prayed in John 17. We ask your grace and your peace on everyone here in Jesus' precious name. Amen.